we're mamas and we throw everything into our kids. We will do anything for them. We will get up in the middle of the night. We will stay awake to make sure their blood sugar is good, but we will get up to make their lunch for school and get them on the bus. And what's sacrificed is our sleep and our sanity. And we just do it day after day after day. Ever feel like you suck at this job? Motherhood, I mean. Have too much anxiety and not enough patience. Too much yelling, not enough play. There's no manual, no village, no guarantees. The stakes are high. We want so badly to get it right. But this is survival mode. We're just trying to make it to bedtime. So if you're full of mom guilt, your temper scares you. You feel like you're screwing everything up and you're afraid to admit any of those things out loud. This podcast is for you. This is Failing Motherhood. I'm Danielle Batman. Each week, we'll chat with a mom ready to be real, sharing her insecurities, her fears, her failures, and her wins. We do not have it all figured out. That's not the goal. The goal is to remind you, you are the mom your kids need. They need what you have, you are good enough, and you're not alone. I hope you pop in earbuds, somehow sneak away, and get ready to hear some hope from the trenches. You belong here, friend. We're so glad you're here. Welcome to Failing Motherhood. My name is Danielle Bettman, and on today's episode, I'm joined by Kristen Roth. Kristen Roth is a mom of three living in Northern California. Since her two sons have been diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, she's become the founder and head coach of T1 Caregiver Kickstart, an online coaching program for parents of newly diagnosed type 1 diabetic children. She helps them bridge the gap from diagnosis to confident caregiver while prioritizing their own self-care. Welcome, Kristen. I'm so excited to be here today. So I know that you are so passionate about alleviating that intense anxiety and stress and exhaustion that you experienced as a new T1 mom. So I can't wait for you to just share your story with us today. Yes, I um, can realize now and appreciate how far I've come, but I guess I'll start from the very beginning of when this all yeah. started. So take it I'm back to mom. the diagnosis day. Okay. I'm mom of three kiddos. And right now they are, the oldest is almost 16, 15, and 11. And my two oldest are boys. And at this point in time, both of them have type 1 diabetes. But the first to be diagnosed was our mid- middle child, Sutton. And at that time, he had just turned 10 years old. And the date was December 22nd, 2015. And that date goes down in history as his diaversary, which is the day he was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. And what happened was we were coming up on the Christmas holiday and I grew up in Green Bay, Wisconsin and was planning on going back to Wisconsin for the holidays. And Sutton, being 10 years old, wet the bed two nights in a row. And I just thought, well, this is very unusual because at two years old, when he got potty trained, I think he wore pull-ups two nights and decided, I am a big boy, and that was it. And, you know, wetting the bed just seemed so odd to me. So I thought, well, he's a boy. I don't know what a urinary tract infection might feel like or a bladder infection or something like that. So I called his pediatrician that morning at the second morning we woke up to wet sheets. And I said, you know, I think I need to bring him in for like a urine test or something like that. So they saw us right away in the, right away that morning. 
And we went in and everything in that department was clear, but then they asked for an AccuCheck, which is a brand of blood sugar meter, and they tested his blood sugar and it was 202, which is not excessively high, but what made it too high is the fact that he was still fasting. It was early in the morning and I he's not a rise and shine and eat breakfast right away kind of kid. And so when the doctor's office said, bring him in right away, we can fit him in first thing, I just said, throw on some clothes and let's go to the doctor. And he never ate breakfast. So that was actually a blessing in disguise because we could see that that fasting blood sugar was really way too high. When he woke up, it should have been more like 80, 85, somewhere under 100. And so 202 was way outside the norm. Hmm. So they said, do not pass go, do not collect $200, go directly to <laughs> UC Davis Children's Hospital. They will be waiting for you there. So we did, we went straight there and he was admitted with a diagnosis of type one diabetes. And, you know, so given that was December 22nd, we were hoping to, um, to fly to Wisconsin on December 25th on the morning of Christmas day. And Typically, they admit you for a diagnosis like type 1 diabetes and plan on keeping you for a week. Well, mm. we were just diagnosed and educated by, I say, fire hose. We were just given all this information, all these sessions where we sat down with a diabetes nurse educator and were taught how to count carbs, how to calculate insulin doses, how to do blood sugar checks appropriately, how to administer emergency glucagon injections all of this kind of thing, just enough to keep our child alive. I always say just enough to act as a human pancreas. And mm -hmm. the crazy thing is, if you have seen you know, in the media or whatever a little vial of insulin and you realize that when you measure out that insulin, you're, you can be measuring out in you know, tenths of a unit. And now, fast forward, Sutton has an insulin pump. We measure in hundredths of a unit. That is the power of that insulin. It wow. is the power to keep them alive, but it, there's also power to make big mistakes. So the pressure mm -hmm. that started that day was just extreme. Mm -hmm. um, we did succeed in getting all of the education complete in like three days, and they got us out of the hospital in time to make that flight Christmas Day morning. And oh, wow. I took that show on the road, flew to Wisconsin, enjoyed a few days with my family, and then came back to reality. And that yeah. was the beginning of, I don't know, just a whole different chapter in my life that I never expected to be in. Yeah, because it was not, it was out of left field, not didn't Come, run in the family or anything like that. No, there is no, no um, history in either my side of the family or my husband's side of the family of type 1 diabetes. There's lots of thoughts about that. In general, it is that autoimmune conditions are what are genetic. And in each generation, it may show up as something different. I did have a grandma who had rheumatoid arthritis, and I myself have an odd autoimmune condition. Um, so there, that is kind of the theory, I will say, that okay. what passes down is an autoimmune condition. And in each you know, person, it may show up as something slightly different. Hmm. So that's high stakes. Yes. Big, big time. <laughs> they, I mean, when you think, I used to think I'm not very like medically inclined, you know, even like a, a really bad scraped knee on one of my kids would just send my stomach like 
just turning over a little bit, just like I'd really have to grimace to like get it cleaned up and taken care of or a really bad, I remember my son once, really, really bad bump to the head. And I just thought, oh, like I just felt that light stomach and things like that. Yeah. And now, now I'm like inserting cannulas and giving injections and analyzing um, blood sugar data and all types of Look things that go. I never, ever would have thought I would have been capable of doing or confident to be able to, you know, to do. Yeah, that's a transformation. So complete, did, complete. did that happen overnight? Absolutely not. No. <laughs> um, I would say, I mean, we are coming up on five years in and it that it's kind of a blessing and a curse because I do feel like, I, not, I, maybe not curse, but what happened was a curse. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like an extremely confident caregiver now. But on the way to this point, I Googled every single topic known to man. I read medical journal articles. I read book after book after book. I followed different bloggers. I joined all types of Facebook support groups, what they call support groups. And I would find myself just digging into those support groups for hours each day, scrolling social media, reading all of the stories. And when I look back now, I think that was, it was one way that I did learn a lot of information, a lot of tips and tricks and ways of dealing with type 1 diabetes. But in the process, I was just constantly bathing my brain in fear, anxiety, paranoia, worry, all of these worst case scenarios, everyone sharing the terrible things that happened to them the night before or the day before, Mm. all these scary stories. And it just fed me this constant negativity. And that is when my anxiety started to rise and my negativity started to just like feed everything that I did. And I just became a mom that when I think back now, I'm not proud of that person that I was. Mm-hmm. It probably really got bad about two years in, and it probably took another eight months before I was ready to deal with it and before I was ready to say, this is something that I'm causing and something that I need to fix instead of thinking that my kids were the bad ones or my husband was the bad ones or everything was blamed on type 1 diabetes. Mm-hmm. I was really, I'll say at fault. I was the one who was causing this to happen, and I was the one who could stop this from happening and get better. Yeah. So what did it look like to feel when you were at your worst of dealing with this diagnosis? Because I'm sure that you were just trying to do your best with very good intentions of keeping your son alive. And you had another son that was also diagnosed? Yes. Once Sutton was diagnosed, there is a clinical trial called TrialNet. And some people choose to participate and some do not. It's a way to, it's a simple blood draw and they look for type 1 diabetes antibodies. And so I had it done. I came back negative. My daughter had it done. She came back negative. But our other son, Mason, his came back and it showed that he had three antibodies for type 1 diabetes. So at that point, he was invited to be in a subsequent clinical trial. And that clinical trial was essentially those oral um, oral glucose tolerance tests that you take um, during pregnancy usually. Mm-hmm. And he would do the, the three-hour one every six months. And 
he did them twice. And then the third time, so 18 months later, we saw that he was starting to get impaired glucose. When he got to the end of the three-hour test, his blood sugar numbers were still way too high. And so Mm. we did it one more time, and then they were completely out of range. And so at that point, he was dismissed from the clinical trial. And they said, Mason, you are technically also type 1 diabetic. Mm. At that point in time, he did not start insulin because he was so early on, such an early, early diagnosis. And the blessing in that is that he never like harmed his body from having extreme high blood sugars for long periods of time and us not knowing. And he never ended up having to stay in the hospital and he never went into what's called DKA or diabetic ketoacidosis, which is where the body um, becomes very acidic and there's lots of terrible side effects. He was just diagnosed in what they call the honeymoon, a very strong honeymoon. And we just were told to continue watching his numbers. So we did blood sugar checks once or twice a day. And right about a year later, we noticed we were seeing numbers that were just not acceptable and not safe for him to be at. So at that point, he started insulin. So now he's just passed his first diversary of starting insulin. And we have two type 1 diabetic sons. So it's, okay. it's a lot, but yeah. down the road, I, I am, I'm happy they'll always have each other as backup. And it really is a whole family disease. Like n- not in that everyone has it, but that in everyone pitches in and everyone has to be very knowledgeable. Even our daughter, she's always first to, you know, come running with a juice box or some carbs if someone's low or, you know, mm-hmm. pitching in with whatever needs to be done or prepping mm-hmm prepping fruit boxes for her brothers or whatever, you know, Mm. we all jump in and help. Hey, it's Danielle. Did you know that I offer virtual parent coaching consultations? If you feel like you've tried every parenting strategy under the sun and none of them are working, and if you and your partner are not on the same page in those heated moments, and if you can't seem to get it together and stay calm like you want to, You are not alone. Who knew parenting was going to be this hard? As your parent coach, I help you figure out what's really going on, problem solve new strategies, and help you feel like you know what you're doing. Find more information at my website, parentingwholeheartedly.com. As a new client and podcast listener, enter the promo code PODCAST for $25 off your consultation. I can't wait to work with you. Well, in our our role as moms, we take a lot of responsibility for protecting our kids and keeping them healthy and safe. And so we already have that weight, uh, you know, weighing on us at all times to have that pressure to, you know, do everything that we can to protect our kids. So what did that look like with that added workload and weight of responsibility when it became so fragile, in, right. And that huge margin of error that could happen, you know, how did you deal with that? Right. I would say it just, I was not dealing with it well. And that's what got me to that, to my worst point, to my lowest point. It mm-hmm. was, I was just struggling with trying to do everything right. There was a lot of perfectionism in my life. And yeah. I guess at my worst, I would hear myself and think that I don't even like myself. I would hear the harshness in my words and the blame that I was placing on my husband and on my kids. And I remember a time where 
I feel like I threatened my son. Like I said, I'm giving up. I'm, and it made the way it came out of my mouth, it was like, I'm giving up on you. And it was mm-hmm. because he wasn't doing everything the way I thought he should be able to. And goodness, that sounds terrible just even coming out of my mouth right now because he was only 12 years old and he had only been doing this for two years and I had not perfected everything. And type one diabetes does not play nice and does not always respond in the way that you expect or you hope it will. And maybe he wasn't doing some of the things that I had, you know, told him, you know, you do this and then you do that. And before you eat, you have to do this at a certain time. And Mm-hmm. maybe he was dropping the ball, but he was a 12 year old boy. And for his yeah. mom to say, I'm giving up on you. I'm like, kind of like embarrassed or ashamed that I even yeah. like said that. So That's a lot to ask of a kid. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would say what really happened was that he was at a point of burnout. He had been doing this for two years and it was just a lot. It's around the clock every day. It's right before you go to bed. It's waking up in the middle of the night. Um, at that point, I was still waking up every single night at 1.15 a.m. to check his blood sugar. He had chosen to not have technology. There's a, it's called a continuous glucose monitor, something that you can have um, either on your belly or your arm, and it transmits blood sugar numbers to a parent's phone and so that I can always know what his blood sugar is. But he didn't want a device attached to him you know, on his body, going into his body at all times. And I just felt like that was his choice mm-hmm. to decide. And so every night I would get up at 1.15 and check his blood sugar. And, you know, the first thing he wakes up in the morning and wants to eat breakfast, he has to check his blood sugar. He has to get a shot of insulin. So if when your child wakes up every morning and they know that to eat breakfast, they have to take a shot. To have a snack, they have to have a shot. To eat lunch, they have to have a shot. Like it's just constant shots. And then you eat lunch and maybe your lunch had a lot of, maybe you had a slice of pizza and some fruit, but that slice of pizza had some fat in it. So that changed the rate of digestion. And so then you end up high later. So then you have to have another shot. And it almost feels like a punishment for having a slice of pizza and some fruit, which is a very, for most people is a very normal kind of kid meal or something like that, you know, or even, even if you have a a taco salad, but there's some, some meat or something on there that can have some fat in it. And that can change the way things are absorbed. Plus the lettuce, the lettuce might have fiber so that, well, it does have fiber. So then the fiber plays a role in how all of your digestion and insulin absorption works. So it's just a constant task for a parent and the child. As much as I would try to take on, there was still a lot of responsibility on him. And Mm -hmm. that's just part of trying to create uh, and coach your own child into becoming an independent type one diabetic adult. Yeah. How did that affect your relationship with him? say at my worst, it was really becoming something very negative. But overall, when I think back since ever since Sutton was diagnosed in the hospital, and then whenever we go to his endocrinologist appointments every three months, we really are a good team. And Mm -hmm. I had my darkest moments. But when it comes down to it, Sutton trusts me 100%. He lets me do any kind of, you know, injections or inserting like different devices that he's using right now, like he trusts me 100% and I'm his, he knows I'm his biggest cheerleader and 
you know, we go to the endocrinologist and he gets his A1C test done, which essentially is a little report card of how your blood sugar has been managed. It's based on a blood test. Okay. And I, every time when we leave, we go and get like a Starbucks or something like that. He picks out his Frappuccino that he wants or whatever. And it's not because your A1C was good or your A1C was bad. It's just like, hey, we did this another three months. Like, let's go have a little celebration. And mm. we always do a little silly cheers in the car. And when we, after we get it, and it's just something that I've always been really conscientious of celebrating, like you're doing this and it's, it's not a reflection of your worth or mm. your success because type one diabetes is very difficult to manage. And I always say that we very much manage it. Some people mm. originally would ask, Oh, do you have that under control yet? And there's never, ever having diabetes under control. You are mm-hmm. always just managing it day mm-hmm. to day, meal to meal, moment to moment at times. Yeah. And I, I have no prior experience of living with or really knowing personally someone who has that diagnosis. And so the the stories that you have shared with me of just what that looks like on a day-to-day basis, it just feels like a lot. and so what what is like that experience of a newly diagnosed family like what what resources do they have like how are they able to kind of get on a healthy trajectory of understanding it and being able to do it confidently um like what what is like the normal experience The normal experience is that most, almost all of the time you are admitted to the hospital with your child, depending on the part of the country or let's say your insurance network or the practices of your local children's hospital. It's anywhere usually between three days and a week. And you're just admitted. Your blood sugar is constantly monitored. And essentially what you're taught is how every time, you know, in your in the hospital, when your meal comes, you're taught how to add up the carbohydrates on the plate, how to calculate your insulin dose based on the carb ratio that your endocrinologist has assigned to your child, and then how to properly draw up the insulin into the syringe and inject it, and then also how to administer glucagon. And glucagon is only given, it's essentially like an EpiPen. It's only given in emergency situations if your blood sugar goes too low and your child passes out and cannot come to. Then you administer glucagon Mm -hmm. and it's one of those situations where if you do administer it, you automatically go to the hospital and get monitored there. So it's essentially the equivalent of an EpiPen. It's something you only Mm -hmm. use in an emergency, but they focus a lot on being able to do that well and knowing the protocol of when you give it and what you do right after and how to handle all of that. And that is all you're really educated on. You are not educated on the other macronutrients, which really seems like such a basic piece, but how fat and protein play a role in blood sugar management. And you're not taught anything about traveling. I mean, I left the hospital and went to the airport. (laughs) I I still think that's crazy that I managed to do that, (laughs) but I've learned a lot. And we've traveled quite a bit and, but no one teaches you how to go to another city or another country or how to travel well through the airport and on the airplane handling this condition and things that you can do to really make sure your child is safe. Because if something happens when you're away from home, 
just dealing with the insurance of being in a different city is likely to be just another headache that you don't need. So there's all little things that you can do. And then also like school, going back to school and how to deal with classmates and teachers and the school nurse. And then if you are type one diabetic, you usually have a 504 plan with your school district and how to go into that meeting and really advocate for your child. And I'll say to get what you want, but just to put on the table, what's really important and how to let everybody in that team meeting know that you appreciate them and how, I mean, essentially you're going to go in with a positive attitude, hoping to get everything that you ask for. But what really is important to have on there and what things can you, can you let slide or really aren't as important and dealing with substitute teachers who don't know your child's situation. And then also sports. No one in the hospital taught us about sports or activities or wanting to go to a day camp or how to get a babysitter and make sure that you feel safe leaving your child with a babysitter. And there's just all these things. And I figured them all out on my own. And that's so overwhelming. It's overwhelming. And I spent just so much time, like I said, reading book after book, reading articles, Googling. And when, you know, we know when you Google something, you can sometimes come across several different answers or several different Mm -hmm. opinions. And although that's good as a new type one mom, you're like, well, I don't know. This person did it this way and it sound, sounded great, but this person says that's absolutely wrong. And yeah. so then you're kind of like, I have lots of information, but I still feel like I might be doing it incorrectly. So yeah. it's just can be really, really overwhelming. So that's where I came to the point that people started asking me to coach them. What happened was friends of friends would have know someone who got diagnosed and they would point them my way. And I had a couple of parents ask me to coach them. And so I did. And when I look back now, I I see how far they've come and I'm so proud of these parents. And I see how really nicely managed their children are. And they're a couple of years in and things are going great for them. And then I see some other families, you know, I still dabble in those support groups, really trying to offer value and support to these newly diagnosed families. Mm -hmm. And I see parents who are six months, a year, sometimes more in, and they're just so frustrated and so burned out. And I think a big piece of it is we're mamas and we throw everything into our kids. We Mm -hmm. will do anything for them. We will get up in the middle of the night. We will stay awake to make sure their blood sugar is good, but we will get up to make their lunch for school and get them on the bus. And what's sacrificed is our sleep and our sanity. And we just do it day after day after day. And I felt like when I see the difference between the parents that I've worked with and all of the parents that don't have a resource, I thought someone has to be doing this. And I just spent more time on Google looking for coaches for parents or caregivers of newly diagnosed type one kids. And I can, I'm still looking, I cannot find anyone doing this. There are coaches for newly diagnosed type one adults or people who are having trouble as adults, you know, managing their type one diabetes, even like years and years in, or who are dealing with side effects of years of bad blood sugar control. But there is Oh, and there are counselors who advertise, you know, if your child can't accept their diagnosis, they will, you know, deal with that. But Mm. no one is being proactive and trying to coach these newly diagnosed families and the, the caregivers and 
the boots on the ground things, all the things that can make your day to day easier. So, so often I say, if you are in New York city and you want to go to California, you can fly in an airplane or you can get there in a car and you can drive. Mm-hmm. But most people choose to fly in the airplane. Why? Because their time is valuable and they know when they get there, they're going to be in a lot happier mood and feeling a lot better. And they're going to get to spend more time in the good place. Right. And so that's kind of what I feel like I'm offering being a coach. I've seen how I got myself to the bad place and how mm-hmm. I was not the mom I wanted to be to my kids and how I was cranky and irritated and just... I wasn't being a, a great partner for my husband. We were at, end, at odds all the time. And I wish I would have had someone to, like, I, I say bridge that gap to mm-hmm. take me from New York to California, hand in hand on the airplane. And that's yeah. what I try to do. I just want to bridge that gap and teach people with my years of experience um, in all those things that I didn't get educated about in the hospital because that's your day to day. And that's, what makes a real difference with blood, blood sugar control and, you know, your child's emotional well-being and your own well-being. Mm-hmm. So in those first few years when you were trying to figure it all out, were you taking care of yourself? Those first few years? No. I would – I've always been, you know, I, I would like to go to the gym or I'd like to go on a run, but it got to be less and less. And when I would squeeze it in, it would be more of – almost as a punishment to myself. Oh, I feel like I'm, you know, gaining a little weight. I have to punish myself with, you know, some kind of exercise. And I just was exhausted all the time. I was not getting good sleep. I was not, you know, putting a lot of thought into, you know, fueling myself with healthy food. And I just, yeah, I was not taking care of myself at all. And about two years ago, I really decided I'm not going to be in this space of negativity all the time. And it can be little things such as, you know, just like a morning walk or Mm -hmm. truly I have a small morning routine that doesn't take more than like 20, 25 minutes, but I do a little bit of morning stretching. I do a little super quick um, devotional that's important to me. Mm -hmm. I do like a five or 10 minute guided meditation with the Headspace app. And then I just on the, in my journal, I jot down three things that I'm grateful for every morning. And I jot down three things that I'm grateful for every night. And it's just these tiny little things that I try to do first thing in the morning. And then those three things I'm grateful for right before I go to bed. And when I think back, I'm like, that was so simple, but that along with just trying to get out at least once a day, if the weather, you know, cooperates for, for a walk and going to the gym or doing a little bit of exercise in my basement when I can just Knowing that I'm prioritizing and starting that day with something for myself makes me feel like I've put myself first because I can't, I can't give to everybody else if I'm not filled up myself. Like I always say, you can't give from an empty cup. You can't give from a full cup. You have to be overflowing. That's where you can really mm. easily give to others well. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of what I'm always trying to do every morning, just fill myself up so that I have some overflow for everybody else. Because then I know that I'm going to stay in a positive space and I'm going to be a more pleasant person to be around because I've been there. I mean, I was at my worst and I didn't like that person. I didn't like that person just as a single person. I didn't like 
the type of mom I was being and I didn't like the way I was being to my husband, I was like, I was not proud of it at all. And now, now I like myself and I think everybody else likes me a lot more too. (laughs) So when things felt so touch and go, did it feel like you couldn't afford to take care of yourself or prioritize yourself? I just, I think I was stuck a lot in the realm of perfectionism. I was put, I felt like if I don't keep doing this and if I don't do this thing, like exactly at this time and every single day, like I just had all set up all these parameters for myself. And I think a lot of it was based on things that I had, had read and things I had seen other parents doing in, you know, Facebook support groups or whatever. And I'm like, well, I better do it all because if I don't do it all, then I have, I risk something falling through the cracks or some, me mm-hmm. not doing as much as I possibly can for my kids. And really when I say it out loud now, it sounds so silly but it was really just all of these rules that I had created for myself and was reflecting onto my kids. If my kids didn't follow all the rules, or especially my type one sons, if they weren't following all the rules about pre-dosing their insulin a certain amount of time before they ate dinner, then it was, you know, there was negativity about that. Yeah. And, you know, that's just not the real life, you know? So I was just living very rigid, very mm-hmm black and white and just like really not living, just going through the motions, checking all the boxes every day, because that's the only way I felt like I could still cope and get it all done. Yeah. But it wasn't, it wasn't building good relationships with my kids and it wasn't making, it wasn't making anybody happy, including myself. Hey friends, Danielle here. I'm so excited to be able to offer you a way to get the help that you so desperately need, like so many of our guests have. I'm a big fan of therapy. As a mom, it's a must-have. Your mental health has a direct effect on your child's mental health. You can't give them what you don't have, and asking for help is a sign of strength. But it's intimidating. I get it, and you have to find childcare, and with COVID, who can even venture out these days? Well, have you heard of better help? They're a new sponsor of this podcast, and they are here to help. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. BetterHelp will assess your needs through a questionnaire and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. Their counselors are legit. Licensed, trained, experienced, and accredited psychologists, marriage and family therapists, clinical, social workers, or licensed professional counselors. And BetterHelp is committed to helping you find a good match, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. It's accessible for clients worldwide, and financial aid is available. As a special offer for Failing Motherhood listeners, you get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash wholeheartedly. That's betterhelp.com slash wholeheartedly to get the help you need today. Your kids need you whole. Okay, back to the show. And I think one of the biggest things we struggle with as moms is that illusion of control over our kids and when mm-hmm. they're okay then we can be okay. And most of it is an illusion. We don't actually have control over, 
you know, their behavior and their grades and their decisions and their health. And a lot of that is very hard for us to cope with and accept. And so instead, we kind of buckle down on the things that give us that feeling of control so that we feel like we're okay. And I'm sure with such an out-of-control diagnosis with a disease that is so hard to manage and, you know, doesn't play nice, I'm sure that was just exacerbated for you. Completely. It was. So for moms that don't have kids with T1, what do you wish that they would hear from your story and what advice do you have that you just feel like you've learned? I think what I've learned since Sutton's diagnosis and then Mason's diagnosis and seeing how I went in this dark spiral and had to work really hard to get out of that place, do everything you can to not get there. And really, I think it all starts with prioritizing, maybe not prioritizing, but taking time for yourself. And it does not need to be a huge commitment. It can just be something really small every morning. It can be something, if you can just manage to set your alarm five minutes earlier and do a five minute stretch on on the carpet next to your bed, that's just five minutes of breathing, deep breathing and stretching that you've given yourself Mm -hmm. or a little walk. Maybe you have little ones and you can't get outside to go on a walk, but you can throw headphones on and turn on a podcast or some kind of comedy on your on your headphones and walk around your living room and just laugh and be lighthearted and treat yourself to 10 minutes doing something like that that you enjoy. Mm-hmm. Or like I said, a guided meditation. I've really enjoyed some just five or 10 minute guided meditation sessions where it's about breathing and focusing in on the positivity and the light inside yourself and just fueling that is just priceless time to me every day. And like I said, it's not hours and hours spent. I don't spend hours at the gym. I don't go on hour long walks. I don't, you know, do all, like, I don't have a big regimented outline of what I need to do for self care. It's just mm-hmm. tiny things and really trying to front load your day with them, doing something first thing in the day. Because once everyone else wakes up and your day starts going, number one, you're not usually going to take time to do them. And number two, then you're kind of trying to play catch up. It's better to like have that super full or overflowing cup before you start giving to everybody else. Yeah, I think that's brilliant advice. And it's so hard for us to take and apply and think Mm -hmm. that, yes, even I need that. (laughs) Right. Or that it's going to matter if it's only five minutes, but it really, really does. It really does. It's the smallest thing. And just start with one tiny thing. You know, just start with keeping a pad of Post-its next to your bed and writing down three things every morning when you wake up. When your feet hit the ground, you grab the pen and and Post-its and write down three things you're grateful for. And then maybe on the back, before you go to bed, you write down three things, throw them in your nightstand drawer. And after a month, you can go back and look through it, all those things you're grateful for and blessed with. And it's just, I mean, what a positive thing to realize how much you've been grateful for in the last month. Yeah. Yeah. That, and that positivity just grows and creates a snowball momentum forward. It brushes off on everyone around you, everyone, especially in your family that is the people that you care about the most. 
Yeah. So are you struggling with anything still um, with, you know, the managing of the disease or, you know, just your own perception of yourself as a mom as a whole? Is there anything that you feel like you're failing at or, you know, that you're just still struggling with? I would say as my kids get a little bit older and they're teenagers, they I want them to be independent young adults, but sometimes they choose to manage differently. And although we're still very much a team and I support them and they ask, you know, they ask for advice, sometimes sometimes they forget, but they're teenagers and sometimes that's really hard for me because I I can see that perfectionist tendency was with me way back when I was a teenager. And which is not necessarily a good thing, but I want to, I really have to work hard on remembering that they're not trying to take bad care of themselves. They're not trying to ignore it. They really aren't. Like my kids are very, I'll say compliant or really trying to do a good job. They're just normal kids. And Mm -hmm. what they do much better with is me cheering them on. And when I do see like really great blood sugar being like, whoa, like you had, that was a, you ate a, not necessarily a lot of food, but oh, there was a lot of carbs in that dinner or, oh, there was a lot of protein with your lunch. Like, did you extend the bolus, which we call it with extending the way his insulin pump delivers the insulin? Oh yeah, he did. I'm like, nice work. Like really just encouraging him and giving him pats on the back. And with both boys, that goes so much further. So Mm -hmm. really programming my mind as teenagers, because I can always be like, did you take a shower this morning? Did you, you know, why is (laughs) your Micromanage all the things. Yeah. Micromanage all the things. And although type 1 diabetes isn't something I would have wished for them at all, um, it's something they've been dealt and something – you know, they're going to have to deal with for the rest of their lives. And I am lucky to be their mom and being, be able to be here and support them and, you know, teach them everything I can. And I mean, we're learning together a lot of times. And so just remember that we are a team. And so I still, I still have my moments, but I've gotten a lot better. And I can a hundred percent say that when I focus too much on making the house, I I need to have the house clean, or I need to take care of this laundry, or I need, there's always a million things for us to do, but our kids are not always going to be there. Mm -hmm. And so it's very easy for me to focus still on all the, I'll say external things, but really what matters the most is my heart, my heart for my kids and how my, my kids are doing. And I just need to always put that first. And so, like I said, I wouldn't say it's a struggle, but I still need Every once in a while, I'll see it or I'll hear it, something come out of my mouth. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm going to like do better the next time. And so <laughs> it's something I just have to always remember. I'm a work in progress. And, you know, I've had my challenges, but I am like so grateful that I'm where I am now because it's so much brighter and so much better than it was before. Yeah, which is so encouraging to hear, and which leads me to the final question that I always ask every guest how are you the mom that your kids need? I'm the mom that my kids need because I've been the best advocate they could have ever, ever imagined. 
your kid's never going to say, I need an advocate, but there mm-hmm. have been so many situations where I needed to not necessarily go to bat for them, but I needed to be there for them and push to make sure that they had everything they needed and they were going to be safe and um, like well taken care of while I wasn't around. And even just that they felt empowered because I think a lot of times in medical situations, um, not just children, but adults can feel very like run over, steamrolled, and that here's what you have to do. And I always make sure that my kids understand what the endocrinologist is suggesting or when there have been a handful of time, well, twice, where they've ha- ended up in the hospital f- for different things and nothing drastic, but just like little times where we had to go there. And I made sure the kids understood, here's what we're thinking of doing. Do you agree? And just mm. teaching them to be advocates for themselves because having type 1 diabetes, they're always going to have situations where they're dealing with doctors, medical professionals, hopefully not too many times in the hospital, but where they need to know that they get a, a say, maybe not the final say, but they get a say in their care and the way their type 1 is managed. And that's something I've really been good at and been good at teaching them and I don't think anyone else would have done that the way I do. Yeah, they are so lucky to have you. Well, thank you. (laughs) So how can moms connect with you after this episode? Let's see. After this episode, they can find me on Facebook at just Kristen Sonnebend Roth. And then on Instagram, I'm Kristen underscore Sonnebend underscore Roth. And I also have a website with more information about my coaching program, and that's kristenroth.wixsite, W-I-X-S-I-T-E.com backslash T1D caregiver. Okay. I will put all those links in the show notes. That way they'll be able to just click from there. Yeah. But thank you so much for your time today and for sharing what your journey has looked like from the very beginning to now feeling so confident and ready to give back and help other moms alleviate all of that stress and uncertainty and pressure that you felt and just being able to speak to what you wish you would have known then and what you can see from your perspective now. Yes, of course. I I hope um, so many parents just remember there's so many different situations that come up in our lives and our kids' lives and just self-care is just really something that can so fall away so easily. And I appreciate you adding those show notes. And if anyone, whether your child is diagnosed or everyone sometime or another, here's someone whose child was diagnosed. It just means a lot to me that more people know that I am out there as a resource for those newly diagnosed caregivers. Yes, it will pop up as a, as a little red flag. I know someone for that. <laughs> right. Perfect. Thank you. Yes. All right. Well, you take care. We'll talk soon. Thanks so much for having me. I have so much respect for Kristen and all the moms out there sacrificing and advocating for the needs of their littles. Always remember that you are the mom your kids need. Next episode, Dr. Sue Collins shares a powerful story of what she felt was her biggest failure as a mom and how she grew to accept it and repair her relationship with her son when he became an adult. Keep Kleenex nearby for this one. Do you feel like you're failing motherhood? Then you belong here. Click the link in the show notes 
to join the club and support the show. You are making it possible for this podcast to reach more moms. See you in there. Hey, before you jump off your app, leave a quick review. It helps other moms find this show. Thanks for coming on this journey with me. I believe in you and I'm cheering you on.